Hey everyone, and welcome to the Homefulness Podcast, a conversation dedicated to making home in our multifaceted culture of displacement. I'm your host, Andrew Stevens-Rennie. I think as operators, we have a particular role to play in supporting our tenants flourishing through brave housing that deepens connections between neighbors, as well as centering the voices of those who live there, knowing that deep community takes time and intentionality, as well as policies and practices that reflect shared values and norms. Jeanette Moss is the Director of Strategy and Development for the Salisbury Community Society in Vancouver's Grandview Woodlands neighborhood. In today's episode, Jeanette reflects on the many lessons learned in transforming a church parking lot into a community that is dynamic and brave. I'm especially grateful to be joining you from the unceded and occupied territories of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. From my back window here, I can see uh, the North Shore Mountains, The Burrard Inlet is just a few blocks away, and I'm actually about five blocks away from where my dad grew up, um, the neighborhood where he met my mom. (laughs) And, um, uh, you know, it is, it's, 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 yeah, it's important to kind of, I guess, ground this work in, in part of my story. And so my, my family are settlers, one side from Iceland, the other from Scotland. They came in the late 1800s to find home. And um, uh, this evening, I'm Zooming to you from my laundry room, my office, my home, where I share with my husband and two kids and our three housemates. I'm going to start with a story. 20 years ago, at a local neighborhood meeting, a mental health advocacy group asked local churches what they were doing for the increasing number of homeless people. And at the time, this church, uh, Grandview Church, wasn't doing very much. After that meeting, a few members of the church formed the Salisbury Community Society and began to incubate multiple nonprofit initiatives. One nonprofit initiative was focused around housing and they began to operate three community houses in the neighborhood. The idea was to bring a diverse group of people together and share life in an increasingly unaffordable neighborhood. And those early days, we learned a lot. like sharing kitchens and bathrooms is really hard to do with your own family, uh, not to mention strangers and housemates and roommates. Um, Gentrification moved through the neighborhood and more and more people needed housing. Salisbury was compelled to think um, bigger than these three homes. And so we started looking for apartment buildings that we could purchase. And we envisioned the benefit of having kind of an integrated housing approach where people from different backgrounds live together in an inclusive and supportive community. Really important that each each person there had their own unit. um, And we got feedback from the people um, that we'd hoped to live there, that hoped to live there. you know, and, and they talked about a space that had a lot of light and a lock on their door and their own kitchen and their own bathroom and plenty of shared space too. Well, as land prices skyrocketed and the dream of buying an already established apartment building faded, we began to look at the church's parking lot um, and the garden a little bit differently. And soon Salisbury, along with the church, uh, went into planning mode. The Cohere Foundation was formed and the church gifted the land to the foundation. Over the next few years, 
Community members gathered and gave input in the many aspects of the building, including building design and ideas around community formation. When we envisioned the community life at Cohere, it looked a lot like friendships growing. Um, less about hiring people whose job it was to care and more about in nurturing an environment where neighbors were encouraged to support neighbors, which led us to this place. This evening, I'm gonna be reflecting on the community where I work. Cohere is a 26 unit apartment building. It's situated on Grandview's um, parking lot and it's operated by Salisbury Community Society. It's home to 37 people as well as the Salisbury office. The main floor has dining hall, a living room, reflection room, guest suite, um, meeting rooms, and of course a kitchen. The photos I'm using today are all pre-COVID, so just want to reassure you that we are all following safety protocols here in Vancouver. Um, and I've organized my presentation using the key values that Bishop Tomlin speak, spoke about are at the heart of deep homemaking, that safety, stability, sociability, and sustainability. And I'm gonna to speak to a little bit about how we've approached these concepts and then how we've actually operationalized them. So what does it actually look like? <laughs> What's the how in all of this? Um, and we have some ideas about what's worked um, or what could work, but I really wanna be explicit that I'm not here to boast about proven accomplishments, rather just tell you a little bit about our growing and learning journey. When housing people who have experienced generational trauma, the bar of what safety means is really hard to nail down. We have fire and safety plans and first aid kits, but do staff really and neighbors know how to listen to someone who feels psychologically unsafe because they saw people praying in the common areas and it reminded them of the residential school that housed their grandparents or their parents? An example that actually happened. Um, we like the idea of co-creating brave housing versus safe housing. Brave housing looks a lot like having safety plans and first aid kits and also staying in awkward conversations with people about how your actions impact them. Safety plans are really important, but operating housing where people can feel safe enough to be known is a really long game strategy and comprises of tiny intentional acts of bravery, being present to people in their own pain. It also really demands housing operators to dig deeper and help dismantle the systems that have oppressed the same people we are trying to house, systems like white supremacy, colonialism, individualism, capitalism, and patriarchy, systems that have run rampant in Canadian housing strategies. In terms of operations, yeah, this looks like safety plans and abuse and protection policies. It also looks like training in how to have hard conversations, workshops on toxic masculinity, developing conflict resolution frameworks, hiring staff that have skill in these areas and that are willing to develop more skill. Because living in community and deep community is messy work. Hands will get dirty and feelings will inevitably get hurt. There's no map 
or blueprint identifying the place that you arrive to in deep community, right? It's unfolding, it's very slow moving. All housing, I think, can contribute to a person's stability. Um, temporary housing, naturally, I think is gonna be a little bit more shallow when it comes to community connectedness because roots can't grow too deep in a short amount of time for both practical and protective reasons. Salisbury's commitment to permanent housing was a difficult decision to make. Salisbury had historically housed a lot of people who stayed in those houses for a few weeks or short stints of time. When Salisbury envisioned Cohere with the folks who wanted to live there, people who were close to or on the streets, being explicit that the housing was permanent was a really deep desire for them. Um, for one of our tenants who spend the majority of their life in the foster care system and bounced around from home to home, the fact that he doesn't have to move on to the next stage of housing was huge. I remember one morning early on him coming down and saying, I can't sleep, Jeanette. Like, I just can't sleep. Like, my reality is better than my dreams. I never have to live, leave here. Um, it was really powerful. I think permanence can build stability, but I don't think it's a guarantee. Um, permanence can also present some really sticky problems because it calls us into deeper commitment to relationships. And the primary relationships are often with people who aren't upwardly mobile, right? They're not gonna go and buy their house or, or buy their own place or, or apply to a job outside the neighborhood. So, Although there have been wonderfully bright, well-intentioned, younger, faith-filled folks who might have a lot to give at Cohere and who have, we've been realizing that our policies and our operations need to primarily serve those who are going to be here for the long run. And we've noticed that those folks that aren't working full-time, for instance, are often the ones doing real heavy lifting in the stability of the community. They're the ones doing ad hoc childcare volunteering, or answering the front door for deliveries, for example. And, and this is John. John, he lived at Cohere for the last few years of his life. He passed away last December, and he was one of those folks who was always around, and we really deeply miss his presence. Unlike other organizations, staff at Cohere really tries to stay out of the center of community to make room for neighbors to connect. And we've been focusing on how we can support neighborliness through the Community Builders Group or the CBG. This group consists of two tenants from each floor and a staff person who meet regularly to make decisions that impact the community. With an emphasis on training and equipping community members with the tools to be good neighbors, the CBG plays an important role in providing the relational foundation for setting community norms and responding to conflict. The CBG was established in the first year of Cohere opening and going forward, if we operate additional sites, which we hope we do, it's our intent to spark CBGs in all of them. You know, when COVID hit, um, this group went into overdrive with safety protocols, creating signage, neighbor check-ins, grocery runs, prescription um, pickups, meal trains, because as staff don't live at the building, it's really important that we see our role as helping to set the table maybe, you know, backroom prep or supporting resources, but the actual feasting, the actual neighboring, the primary relationships are between neighbors. 
How this gets played out in real life, it looks like having a terms of reference for the CBG. It looks like consensus decision-making in that group. It looks like staff understanding what their job is and what it's not. Um, we talk a lot about boundaries at Cohere. We talk a lot about um, what our job descriptions are and we review those regularly. Three ways that we think about sustainability in our building is social, financial, and, and our building. This is one of, one of those steep learning areas um, has been around social sustainability. When we first started, we had what we called residents and co-residents, two types of people who applied to cohere through two different application processes. The mature helpers were called co-residents and those who expressed a need for support were the residents. Shortly after moving in, um, a, a few of the residents came to me and they were quite offended. Um, they were quite offended because some of their neighbors um, who had been befriended them called themselves co-residents and um, also had some sort of agenda with them. You know, since then a lot has happened and we've moved away from such distinctions, which has been important and we've moved towards mutual language. Um, but I mention this because it's something that we're still trying to figure out and we're still kind of unpacking. Salisbury is able to offer a level of deep affordability because the mixed income ratio of our tenants. The rents are set between 24 and 30% of an individual's income. And we see this as a really important feature of our model, incentivizing participation in the community by keeping rents low. In terms of tenant mix, about 60% of the units are for individuals, couples, and families who range from just above the poverty line to really high incomes. Um, and these units are intentionally scattered throughout the building, allowing for natural connection between neighbors. The remaining units are for those that are on income assistance or they, who receive housing subsidies. This mix um, of income is really key to our financial sustainability at Cohere. As I've mentioned, um, Cohere was built with intentional design decisions to create community and encourage people to come out of their units and connect with one another. One quick example of this is that on each residential floor, um, the, each floor has two small pods at the end of the hallway, and these pods act as living rooms, um, kind of extensions of people's units. So the building really does serve a purpose on its own to assist in this important work of neighboring. We also have a skilled building manager who um, supports this sustainability, uh, who works with tenants to maintain cleaning schedules and to support and train for emergency preparedness, as well as regular upkeep of the garden. I think as operators, we have a particular role to play in supporting our tenants flourishing through brave housing that deepens connections between neighbors, as well as centering the voices of those who live there, knowing that deep community takes time and intentionality, as well as policies and practices that reflect shared values and norms. 
we know we can't scale relationships, right? Like what works with one relationship, you can't, it doesn't work for all relationships. They need to be made one at a time with patience and forbearance. But housing operators along with their tenants can help to establish norms. And those norms, you know, those are rituals, rhythms, routines, practices. They lay a foundation for how relationships can deepen. And those norms, I think they can scale. At least that's what we think. Um, Joni Mitchell's song, I think it's called Taxi, that one that goes, um, pave paradise, put up a parking lot, you know the one. Um, that's a song about how a man-made development, right, is a plight, a plight on paradise. Um, but what would happen, friends, if we, if parking lots could be signs of hope, right, signs of connection, parking lots as starting points for homefulness, a possible restoration where people can flourish and where their gifts are valued. Again, friends, my name is Andrew Stevens Rennie. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does go a long way to helping others find us. To find out more about Jeanette's work with the Salisbury Community Society, we've got links in the show notes, including a great video further exploring the Cohere story. If you have any questions for me or any future topics you'd like us to cover on the podcast, send me a note at empireremixed at gmail.com. The Homefulness Podcast was developed by Empire Remixed in partnership with the Sorrento Center, co-hosts of the National Beyond Housing to Homefulness Symposium in spring 2021.